makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Betty Wastelo, Chante Waste na Pechus Apiello, Le Unkipiki Hewastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome. I shake your hand with good feelings in my heart, and it's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokus and Ghost Horse, and you're listening to an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is the producer of First Voice Radio. First Voices Radio. Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcast, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices IndigenousRadio.org for archives. Native peoples, indigenous peoples, meaning one and the same, were deprived of their religion, and they were uneducated in the Western societies. And thus, the materially poorest of the poor often do sometimes to a violent enforcement of Western doctrine and government and religious policies. After centuries of federal and state policies of terminations, removal, and assimilation, Native peoples were substantially worse off than Occidental or Euro-Western societies. In 1978, ARFA, or American Indian Religious Freedom Act, enacted during the Jimmy Carter administration And supposedly, at least on paper, indigenous peoples were able to begin their ceremonies, speak their languages, dance their culture, and thus begin the recovery process of thousands of native cultural lifeways, including self-sufficiency, as well as thinking for ourselves, which we were doing anyway, regardless of failed Western mindsets of government, religion, and science. All dogmatic, by the way. And a flourishing of native authors, scholarly, poets, linguists, medicines, artists, musicians, and the real human beings began to become conscious to the dominant society. Included in this consciousness are native authors such as Dr. 
Paulette Steves, who released the indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere on July 1st. Dr. Paulette Steves was born in Whitehorse, Yukon Territories and grew up in Lillooet, British Columbia, Canada. She's an associate professor in sociology at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie and a Canada research chair in healing and reconciliation. Dr. Steves holds an adjunct faculty position at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. Her research focus is on a Pleistocene history of the Western Hemisphere, reclaiming and rewriting indigenous histories and healing and reconciliation. In her research, Dr. Steves argues that indigenous peoples were present in the Western Hemisphere as early as 100,000 years ago and possibly much earlier. Dr. Steves argues that counter stories to Western narratives of indigenous histories addresses issues that remain critical to indigenous peoples, sovereignty, self-determination, healing, and reconciliation. She has stated that rewriting and unerasing indigenous histories becomes a part of healing and reconciliation, transforming public consciousness and confronting and challenging racism. Long-standing academic denial of the deep indigenous fosters racism and discrimination among the general or settler population. Rewriting indigenous histories framed through indigenous knowledge will create discussions that counter racism and discrimination. Dr. Steve's first book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, was published July 1st, 2021 by the University of Nebraska Press. And I was finally able to interview Paulette this past week. And here is that interview. Wow, it's good to see you. Good to meet you finally, Paulette. Yeah, we've had quite a scheduling, huh? Yeah, um, yeah, just things came up and I'm glad to do this. Yeah, no, I've been busy. I'm slammed with all the finding unmarked burials now on our campus and creating a database of residential schools and five more book chapters I'm doing. And it's like, holy... But, you know, working at home is a blessing because it saves me so much time, right? Yeah, it does. I've had this in mind for a long time since you said it a few years ago, the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere by Paul F.C. Steves. And I know we talked about your story about how you got to where you are now within the the academia and uh, the promises that you made to your relations and your family. But what I'm looking at now is the same thing we seem to sort of amalgamate as Native people who, in the know, want to get past the wall that the Western ideas of who we are as Indigenous peoples, how they present us and assume this is how we are and this is how we think. You and Find Deloria in that road of demything all of those stereotypical thoughts that they have about us, I think this is a primary book to do that and if not more give you a lesson about what has happened since the times that I've interviewed you a few years ago. Can we just start with that Paulette and to the average listener who doesn't know like me all the things that you know and the scholarly aspect of things so this is for our listeners and it's not just for native people although that is important. I think it is for those who would would have a readiness to to change once they hear the information and actually after they read the book. So with that, Paulette, uh, Steve, thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. 
Um, it's really an honor to see you, meet you, and and understand information coming out a little differently as you see it. And I think a general feeling that Native people have is that now we can actually begin to describe, but also prescribe to our own thoughts as Native peoples of who we are and letting the rest of the world know, know that. Well, Western archaeology is a child of colonization. And colonization in many areas of the world was focused not really on finding human history. It was more focused on creating a human history that fit with the colonial model. So the colonial model was, of course, that this was America was a terra nullis. There really weren't many people here. They hadn't been here very long. Um, it completely erased the diversity of indigenous cultures and it erased the time frame of people in North America. So Vine Deloria Jr., I, I quote him in my book and he said that we would never have full humanity until we were equated with ancient times. And when I began, it was well known that it was really academic suicide to address the question of people being here longer than 11 or 12,000 years. And when I told uh, Dr. Steve Holland, who I did my field research with eventually, I, he asked me why I wanted to know about older sites. And I said, well, I just wanna see, you know, if there's very many. And he said, don't tell people what you're working on. They're just gonna call you crazy. Well, if it's gonna be your dissertation, you kind of have to tell people about it. But I was made very aware by reading other authors like Tom Dillahay and Steve Adavasio of the extreme critiquing and, and violence, academic violence they experienced when they published on their sites on Meadowcroft, that was James Adavasio. And, um, you know, what they experienced and they lost, one of them lost their funding, you know, and he had to bring other archeologists there and actually show them the artifacts in the earth and the work to prove that his site in Chile, um, Tom Dillahay, that his site in Chile was older than, you know, 12,000 years before present. But they knew when they, when they got their dating results, they knew they would face a severe critique. So looking at that alone, that is not academic, right? That is not even critically scholarly work. When you include violence and you build a wall against the question of people being anywhere in the world prior to a certain time, there is nothing academic about that. As academics, we're supposed to be open-minded and look at the evidence. So when I began to think about this question, I knew in my mind there was a lot of academic violence against people claiming that sites were older than 12,000 years. And I had to ask the question, why? And the question why comes right back to the colonial nature of archeology. span So I was extremely careful and extremely diligent in seeking the evidence and building the evidence before I made any claims of the possibilities for a deeper time frame for indigenous people in the Americas. And my, my question was, you know, if people were here prior to 12,000 years, um, I had a couple of questions. One, does that mean they were here before the last glaciation? So before 24,000 years, <coughs> excuse me, and, what is the evidence of people on the land? 
So I looked at archeological sites also on a global scale. And I looked at where were people on the land prior to our last glacial maximum, prior to 24,000 years ago. What is the evidence for people on the land? So I looked all over the world and people were all over the world. They were even in the area we call today Northern Asia. And during that time, from 24,000 to 2 million years ago, at various times between the glaciers, there was a land connection between uh, what we now know as Alaska and what we now know as Northern Asia. And so I started to think about, well, what is the evidence for anything or anybody crossing that land? So I began to look at our four-legged relations. And um, I was really surprised. It was really exciting to learn that uh, horses arose in the Americas. So to get to the rest of the world, since they don't fly and that's a long ways to swim, they had to walk, right? So we do have paleontological evidence of horses migrating out of North America to um, Northern Asia prior to the last glacial maximum. Not just horses, camelids, saber-toothed cats. There is a lot of paleontological evidence. So there's no doubt that there was an open land route between Asia and Northern North America for millions of years. So if you look at the fact that, okay, we know that our four-legged relations were crossing, so we know there was food, there was sustenance, there was water, there was an open path. Um, we know it wasn't very far, it was only 54 miles, and we know that there were people in Northern Asia earlier than two million years ago. So if you got humans in Northern Asia two million years ago, and you got mammals crossing back and forth, why did the humans not do that? So that's a real anomaly that does not fit with global human evolution. So this, it led me to look at global human, human evolution. I wrote a book chapter on that as well about the primates because we know that the earliest proto-primates around 65 million years ago arose in areas like Montana and Saskatchewan. And so they had to migrate out to the rest of the world. So I really began looking at human evolution to see what humans were capable of and where was there evidence of humans traveling great distances through different environments. So humans were very, very adaptable. They were obviously very smart early humans. They moved out of Africa, they moved into Europe, they moved into Asia, they had to learn new areas, it all took time. But I just couldn't conceive that when they got to Northern Asia, they said, oh stop, we're not crossing that 54 miles. The animals can go, we're fine here. No, they would have followed them, right? They would have naturally walked across that landmass, not knowing it was connecting two continents and just gone over there and then explored these continents. So when I began to look for evidence of uh, human signatures on the land, I began to look for archeological sites. Well, originally I asked Steve Holen, do you know of any sites that are earlier than 10 to 12,000 years? And he sent me a list of 10 sites. And that's when he said, don't tell anyone what you're working on. They're just going to think you're crazy. So I started reading the evidence of those 10 sites. And in those articles, they would mention other sites. And so I would go find the papers for those sites and start reading those sites. In two weeks, I had 500 sites, 
right? I had the name of 500 sites that stretched from Southern South America to Northern North America from East to West. So I can see there is a signature for humans on the land across both North and South America, dating back in some areas to as early as 200,000 years. And I can see that there is nothing at all that supports the so-called Clovis first hypothesis that says people came here to 11, 12,000 12, years ago. So going back to academia, we're supposed to provide really strong evidence for any claim we make, back it up with tons of data and scientific evidence. But when I looked at what is the evidence for Clovis first, there really wasn't any. And quite the opposite, people had been doing research that showed that it was not possible environmentally. So not only was there no evidence for Clovis first being earliest, it was based on conjecture. Oh, there's some remains here, so we think people have only been here this long. You can't say that. If you're going to make a claim for an entire continent, you need to show data and evidence for the entire continent. Now, we do have fluted Clovis tools um, across the continent. But they're within a very small time frame, about 10,800 to 11,400 years before present. You don't have people come to a continent and start with a beautifully crafted tool. There has to be a precursor to that tool. Archaeologists had argued that, you know, oh, that came from Asia because only people from the other continent were capable of this beautiful technology. They have never found Clovis fluted tools outside of North America. So that signals a really strong question. So what came before Clovis first? And in all of these archeological sites that date earlier than 11,000 to 12,000 years earlier than Clovis, we do see a lot of different tool styles and we see a lot of different technology. And that would be the norm because for every environment, you, in every kind of material from a different place, you have a different kind of tool. So, I, um, I now know of over 5,000 site names. It's a lot to find the evidence. I don't add a site to my database unless I have some published evidence or I go into what's called the gray papers and those are the state records for any site that's excavated and they're held in state archeological offices. So to complete this book, it took a very, very long time and I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles and books on all of these sites, you know, and going over all of their dates and all the work that people did. A few of the critiques uh, ask valid questions and that's a good thing because then you can take that critique, go back to the site or the site materials and do more testing, right? Or do more reading of the soil or re-excavate the site. So I think a lot of people, since I started writing about this, Oh, I think 2015 was my first paper on it. A lot of archaeologists have paid attention and, um, and they're paying attention and they're retesting sites, which is great because sites are getting more information, more evidence and more data documented. So that's a really good thing. There are a lot, a lot of boxes of collections from sites sitting in museums. And that's another thing that we need to do is to go through all of those collections, right? And reassess the collections and reassess all the data and all the discussion on the soils. But when you have that many sites and they stretch across both continents, 
you really have to start asking other questions. You have to stop denying that people were here and ask a lot more questions. So what archeology span has done also is it's erased the diversity of indigenous people. So they created the Clovis first hypothesis and called everybody the Clovis people. There was no such thing as Clovis people except in the wildest imagination of the archeological mind, right? Nowhere in the world is there a pan-hemispheric cultural group. One stone tool does not make a culture. Right, it takes language, it takes cultural practices, it takes subsistence practices, uh, relationships, you know, family links. There's a lot of things that make what we understand a culture. And even in the archaeological record where we do not see much more than stone tools, there are things that show that culture. There are different styles of cooking, there are different pits, the foods they use, the medicines they use, that's all in the soil. So there's a lot of ways to discuss and try to build an understanding of a cultural group in a specific area. But there's no such thing as a pan-hemispheric culture. And all that does is erase the diversity of indigenous people. Archaeologists know better. They know not to do that. But remember, there's a lot of violence against archaeologists that support earlier than Clovis sites. And so it's not the only place that archaeologists faced a lot of critiquing and a lot of violence within archaeology when discussing indigenous people. So nobody would speak out about the Clovis first or the Clovis people, um, you know, being simply conjecture and not being realistic. And I've done that in my book. And it's really important for, for all people to understand that there was immense cultural diversity even in the Pleistocene in the Americas. And we can also see that in rock art. So one of my more re recent projects, I've had students working on a database of rock art sites in Canada. So if I was to try to do the rock art sites for North and South America, I'd need a few hundred people working a few years. There's that many sites. And so that shows where people were on the land. There's a new site that was recently discovered in South America in the Amazon that is just huge and it's over 12,000 years old. So what do we see in a lot of rock art sites? We see depictions and stories of extinct species. So that dates the rock art site. So there's many ways of weaving a story which is something that archeologists are not used to doing. They've never done this. They've always based everything strictly on the material record or the soil testing. But you need to expand that vision because the indigenous history and indigenous stories are held in oral traditions. They're held in rock art. They're held in painted hides, um, especially the Genesis stories. There's many stories that actually a few uh, Western scholars have linked things like volcanic eruptions and great floods to oral traditions. So some scholars are now paying attention. So I tried to kind of begin that work in this book and show how oral traditions are linked to archeological sites. And we need to really pay more attention to that. So since I started writing articles and giving lectures and now that my book is out, I get a, a number of emails from archaeologists thanking me for bringing up these discussions, for asking important questions, and for prevent, presenting this evidence 
on an earlier peopling of the America because it's helping them think outside of that colonial box. And they've started to discuss other possibilities and, and the evidence you know, and, and one archaeologist was recently discover, discussing the evidence of, wait a minute, the people from South America look very different than the people from North America in some areas. Why are we talking about one little migration? There could have been many migrations and people could have gained from many areas. And I agree. And anywhere else in the world, anybody would be open-minded to that. But the story in the Americas has been set in stone. And uh, James Adavasio in his book called it a good old boy pissing contest. We wrote the story, this is what it is and it's not changing. Well, you know what? Human history changes everywhere in the world every single year because we have now got amazing scientific technologies. There's a lot more people working in the field. And what do we understand of general human evolution on a global scale has completely, completely changed in the last five years because of new evidence. And that's a good thing because our focus is to understand the human past, not to constrict it, not to deny it. But within archeology span in the Americas, there is a lot of racism, there is a lot of bias, and it was strictly built on conjecture. Right, And when you go in and you unpack that and you rewrite it, people get very upset because you're challenging their life's work and what they've bought into for decades. But for indigenous people, it's extremely important. And this is a new piece of my work that I'll be starting this year is actually reaching out to indigenous communities and talking about their oral traditions and what the deep past and those links to the land mean to them. My, uh, my daughter went to a young woman's meeting in Northern BC and she said there was a huge cir circle of young women and, you know, suicide and, and depression and illness is, is a really high levels in indigenous communities. It's the aftermath of genocide and colonization. And my daughter said each girl in the circle was asked to go and turn and say one thing that gave them hope, just one thing. And she said this young girl's face just lit up and she got real excited and she said, there's this archeologist in the US who says we've been here over 50,000 years. That gives me hope we will get our land back, our history back, our identity back. And my daughter said, tee hee hee, I did not tell her it was my mom. But <laughs> that really tells me that you know, this is what I want. I want to help to bring healing. And I understand as an indigenous person who's faced um, colonization, who's lost all of their family lands and, and connections to those lands, who's been totally disenfranchised, I want to bring hope back for everybody. And, and I want to help be one little flame in that fire of healing. And I, I also want for non-Indigenous people to understand, to be able to think critically. They need to understand that when they went to school, their minds were colonized to think what it was safe for the nation state. What made the nation state look good? That's what they were taught to think.
They were taught to think that we weren't diverse. There weren't very many of us here. This was a terra nullis, an empty land. We didn't have a deep history here. And they need to throw all that out and start over, right? Start over is a great thing. And here is the book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, where you can start over informing your understanding of indigenous people. Because when you do that, you challenge bias, you challenge racism, you challenge discrimination, and you take the freedom to inform yourself about the past based on a solid body of evidence from archeology, span from paleontology, from linguistics, from oral traditions. It's not just one piece of evidence or one person. I based my book on the work of at least a hundred archaeologists that really faced, you know, a strict canon and went against the grain, jumped out of their box and said, wait a minute, my dates are older than 12,000 years and I have a right to publish. And so they did. And if they hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to write this book because I wouldn't have found the evidence. So I'm, I'm very grateful to all those Western archaeologists, people like Scotty McNeish and Tom Dillahay and the McKays and James Adavasio for publishing on their sites. It's extremely important. And now it's leading a lot of archeologists to seriously question uh, that we've only been here 12,000 years. There are still some areas in academia where they're trying to fit stories to the colonial model. DNA is one area. So people always ask me, well, what about DNA? Well, here's the thing they don't tell you about DNA. They write these great stories. Everybody's related to, you know, the Anzic child and, and this is why, but what they don't tell you is that's based on less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of what would be the data for a body of DNA data for indigenous people in the Americas. They don't have the data, right? And there's a lot of conflicting articles um, in within the DNA spear of Native Americans. You know, some people say there was one migration, there was two, there was three, there was four, nobody can agree. Well, basically you just gotta understand that this is great work, it's great we have this technology, but we don't have the samples to be able to say everybody's from here or everybody's from Asia because you don't know that. So you shouldn't be claiming that, you should be saying based on a very small subset or a very small data set from ABCD communities, we know this. There's no reason to claim that everybody came from Asia when you can't look at all the data. And until you collect more samples and have a bigger understanding, you can't do that. And that, that's an easy thing to figure out. People can figure that out for themselves, right? But it's just understanding that there is still a lot of unethical bias within archaeology and anthropology and DNA studies that limits indigenous people to within the colonial story that has been kind of set in place for decades. This is First Voices Radio, and I'm your host, Teokasin Ghost Horse. You're listening to Dr. Paulette Steves, author of the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, which was published July 1st, 2021 by the University of Nebraska Press. And now back to Paulette Steves. 
One of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking about the early history of even cultural anthropology was two names. We, we often refer or defer ourselves to Darwinian thoughts. And also the earlier one that I know worked with one of Vine Deloria's earlier ancestors, Elise Deloria. And she worked with Franz Boas, sort of a maverick out of that early field of cultural anthropology and the study of it. When I think about this, that is that really today's 100 years later or more bias that you were talking about, that we, we continue to think that that's setting stone for the rest of us and we should follow that lead? People need to remember there's always more than one way to see, one way to listen, and one way to understand. A single story is a very dangerous thing. It puts one story, one person, a group of people into control, right? We always have to stay open-minded. Um, all of that Darwinian and human evolution, that's a guide. And that's a good guide. And there's a lot of it that's right. But we always have to be very open-minded. There's always anomalies. There's always differences. And when you have a mindset that things are only one way, you're not going to see other stories. So we need, we have so much more to learn about human evolution, right? And how did people interact with the land? And why did certain species um, become so big and weave their way into oral traditions? When we look at the evolution of um, some of our winged relations, we can see there's a bird called Tetronus during the Pleistocene. This bird was likely a member of the vulture species. So we can go back through that bird's evolution and see where they lived, where they came from. And we can understand from oral traditions and stories of Thunderbird, right? How people interacted and wove that bird through their lives. Did people see a giant bird that could pick up a human? Yes, they did. And it's in the paleontological record. So when we look at, you know, different theories about evolution of human and mammals, those are very important guides. And a lot of people have done really amazing work. I was, I was so excited. I'm such a nerd. I was so excited to find a book uh, specializing on Pleistocene um, I think it was hippopotamuses, because that told me they were in the Americas, because I was out at a field site, right? And we found a bone, and I was told that's what it was. So now I go study that whole history and see, wow, where did they come from, and how did they get here, and when were they here? Did people interact with them? And then I go look for the information about that relation in oral traditions, right? And there are oral traditions of mammoths and mastodons that have been linked to archaeological sites. So those, um, those theories of how, how people and all of their relations came to be are really important. And people have based a lot of really good work on them. But we always, always have to be open-minded to seeing things other way because there's always more than one story. Thank you for that. I'm thinking along the lines of when I hear these languages, and especially my language of Lakota, the words are talking about dinosaurs. We're talking not the fear factor that comes out of the West, 
but how much we as Native people have been colonized by that language to think our viewpoint doesn't count anymore, that it's secondary. And almost every thought we have, we refer to that science that's been brought in deduction, but yet our stories are still solid. So I'm, I'm glad that you're going to go forward and, and quote unquote, discover more within our languages, because I think that will change and touch the hearts of many and so that they can make decisions a little differently and offer that opportunity that you ask or you're saying. So when I'm thinking about the so-called happenstance knowledge that's out there that's still, well, that's the native people. They say they're here. They we came from Pangea and where all land was one once. Um, and yet there's stories that I know from my travels that these stories of Mongolians and talking about coming from another land of like the interchange of stories came back and forth, right? The intermarriage, intermarriage. And so that needs to be proven. But how do you prove such a thing? Well, linguistics helps in some ways. And so that's a real specialized field. But we know that uh, Diné language is in Alaska and it's in Arizona, right? We know that language is linked by studies of the language. We know that within Diné's stories, they talk about different levels of the earth and about traveling and moving to new areas of the earth. With oral traditions, most anthropologists and archaeologists, well, most people, period, are not able to understand how complex and intricate they are. So people created oral stories in a way they would be remembered right? Incredibly colorful, linked to amazing things. You don't forget that. And I'm always really excited to go look on YouTube and find more oral traditions and Genesis stories that were created by the communities themselves. So I can have an understanding of their histories. And that's something we have to normalize in education, right? We have to teach the teachers, because most are not Indigenous, to teach Indigenous histories. And it's, I'm so happy that communities are finding the funding and the people to create videos on their oral traditions, right? So they're told in an oral way with a video, maybe. That's a teaching tool. But for for most non-Indigenous people to unpack what that really means, they can't do it because our languages were so incredibly intricate and so metaphorical. It was a very... Indigenous languages were very rich. And I think there's over 360 language families in the Americas. That's more than the rest of the world put together. So that really speaks to the high diversity of Indigenous people they had to be here. Joanna Nicholas is a linguist. And she said that it takes 6,000 years for a new language to form within a language family. So given the number of languages, how many thousands of years were people here for those languages to form? California alone has 15 language families. That's more than Europe, right? It's amazing. And scholars and anthropologists have forgotten this. They don't want to listen to this, right? Because it goes against their story, that we were extremely diverse. We had these amazing languages. For my master's degree, I had to find something to translate from a foreign language. And it was amazing. I found uh, 
these digitized ancient records from the 1700s that were put online, they were in a museum in, in France. So some French explorers were going down the Mississippi River and they were really concerned at how things were going, that all the Indians were gonna die and nobody would know their story. So they stopped and spent enough time with, with some groups along the Mississippi to understand their language and write down their stories. Of course, they wrote them down in French and you have to realize translations are pretty rough from maybe Quapois to French back to English. But I translated this story and it was just amazing. Um, the, a father was teaching his three young daughters about how to live ethically with the land and how to be good good humans and do the right thing. And even though the translation was rough, the story was there. And who knows for how many thousands of years that teaching has been told. So when people think about oral traditions, they don't think about history. They don't think about lessons on morality, living, birthing. But we find these lessons in oral tradition. We find these lessons in rock art. There's a rock art site in Michigan and its location remains secretive, but it has a giant carved, complete, anatomically complete and perfect woman's body. And it is a place where they bring young women to teach them proper birthing techniques, right? That's been carved in the rock for thousands of years. So I really hope that academics will start and teachers will start thinking that we're not just telling stories. This is history, this is science, this is astronomy, this is botany. All of this knowledge has been left in the land and held in oral traditions. And it is knowledge and it is science. And people have been taught not to think that way and they need to change how they see our knowledge, right? and our wisdom and they need need to, and we need to provide it and a lot of indigenous scholars are now providing a lot more publications which is wonderful a lot more videos but you have to change the mind of the western academic and get them to open up to the fact that this is science mm -hmm. this is knowledge some people have shown this is knowledge by linking floods and volcanoes to oral traditions so you need to weave this into your lessons, specifically since you're on indigenous land. Mm. Bring the knowledge of the indigenous people of this land into your classrooms. So beautiful. Thank you for this, Paulette Steves. You know, I'm thinking kind of um, in another aspect, you talked about changing their minds. And, and yes, that's part of it. And if that's not the whole of it, what I'm saying is I just read a book recently about this uh, science reporter going to three different continents um, and she she basically did the research about the occidental psychologies 12 percent of the world is from that european descent and out of that 12 percent is that they enforce 96 percent of the world's psychologies so we have a lot of work to undo that psychology that we're supposed to explain it to them and and say it the way they want instead of how it really is with us yeah, 5%, uh, sorry, 95% of the world's knowledge in Western academia comes from 5% of the world, right? And that was colonization. You're only going to learn our education and what we think is right, and you're going to learn it our way. So I really think one way to start decolonizing schools is by having more Indigenous faculty, more Indigenous elders as teachers, 
and being open to bringing in community members to teaching. And I, I often hear from academics, they're scared to death. So it's not just that they don't know our history, they've been taught to fear it as something of an anomaly. Oh, I wouldn't know how to teach indigenous knowledge. What if I didn't do it right? I'm sorry, did you go to school and say you would only teach one type of knowledge and you would only know European knowledge and that's the only one you could teach right? No, we're intelligent. We can always adapt what we know. We can always learn. If people really want to learn how to decolonize their classrooms and curriculum, start reading indigenous authors. And I always make a big point of this because they asked me to give workshops to teach people how to indigenize classrooms. I'm like, no, they're academics. They can figure that, a lot of that out. Do you know how many papers are out there on indigenizing the classrooms? How many workshops, how many books, and how many indigenous scholars have put this out there for you? You don't need me to take you by the hand and walk you down the path. Yes, I'd love to build a library at my school for everybody and put all the materials there. Then you go learn, right? It's you have a responsibility as an academic, as a teacher to learn. The thing is, a lot of Western scholars don't even know what colonization really is. They don't understand how deeply their own minds have been colonized. Well, guess what? There's articles on that too. So people have to invest their time. It's not just up to indigenous people and indigenous faculty to create all of healing and reconciliation and fix everything. People can fix themselves because we've made them aware of the need to do that. You know, the residential school issue has made them aware of the genocide and the need to decolonize their minds and become informed, right? Learning about something, why should you ever be afraid of learning? But that is the biggest excuse I hear. Oh, what if I don't do it right? I don't know how to do it. You know how to go find a paper and read it, right? So I think they use that as an excuse for not actually doing the work. And what they don't understand is colonization and they don't understand that their minds have been colonized and that our knowledge is science, is technology, is history, and is legitimate. But there's lots of papers for them to read on that too. So what you're really saying is that, yes, this will be accessible. Do we still have to need, acquire their education and understand the decolonization? Or do we understand it inherently as maybe they forgot how to decolonize? Because ours, is, it seems... The road is ceremony with that land, a particular location. There's clarity with that and originality, but they come with another mindset of religion or to realign close to the laws that they've created to follow, and yet that's restricted. So you're talking about outside the restrictions of this language, even the viewpoints to open up to that there are this multidimensional quantum physics that Indigenous peoples inherently have implanted within our languages. And, and that's what I feel, even the description of water. People, as you know, have heard many Wichoni means water is life. Yeah, that's very noun-filled, but what it really means, mini, the M-N-I in alphabet, is the M part is meaning that which is related between you and I and all things. The ni part is living. The E in mini is voicing or speaking, voicing the living relationship between you and I and all things. And it makes sense that this is water, at least to the Lakota people, that this is water because it's the consciousness of everything. And that's how much this earth library we have. And your book, 
is speaking to that. Almost in every page, I'm looking at it like, this is what we need. Is there anything that you could tell a general food for those folks who are really interested? Because there are a lot of people, like you say, that are so thirsty for this indigenous knowledge. Right. I think uh, you, you brought up a really good point there. And there are a lot of people that are, are really thirsty for any knowledge outside the Western canon. And the thing is, we think differently. We see differently. Everything is related, right? Everything is to be respected. Everything is a relation. You don't abuse things. You don't abuse the earth. You don't abuse the water. And that is a pimatsuin, a good way to live. That is a good life. But what are non-Indigenous peoples taught? What are they so vested in because they're afraid if they don't follow what they've been taught, it's dangerous. That's what they've been taught. If you don't follow this way of life and think like us, it's dangerous. They've been taught that nothing is related. Nothing is respected. Everything fits into a capitalistic mode of production. You can tear down the mountains. You can tear down the forest. You can disembowel the earth. It's all good because we'll all get more money and we'll all be better. They, they're really interested in our understanding of everything is related and respected. And I think the more people that get that, the better we will be, the better the earth will be, and the sooner we'll stop destroying the earth. So I think that knowledge that th this is a starting place for people to understand that we have a responsibility to the earth. We have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to the past generations that left those stories, those archeological sites in the land, to use that to tell the story of how long people have been here or where. And I have a responsibility to bring that story to the next seven generations so they can have hope and pride and understand their homelands, how long their people were here, what their people did on the land, how they were connected to the land. And it's super important. Archaeologists are not uninformed about the importance of connections to the land across time. They know and they have published about the longer that people have been in a geographical area, the stronger their claims to that land, to history, to identity, to everything, to, to all the artifacts in that land, their claims to ownership. When you cut that off, like archaeology has done, oh, nobody owned that, it's all ours, right? No, it's not. This is the Indigenous people's history. But if I could leave one thought with people, it's I'm really happy that people are open to understanding how our worldview, right? How we interact with the work. What is Pimatsuin? That, that there are people that are very interested in bringing Indigenous knowledge into their classes. And for healing and reconciliation to ever take place, we need all Western scholars in every classroom to realize it's a very normal and very good thing to include Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous worldviews, and Indigenous histories told by Indigenous people in everything that they teach. That's so true. Thank you for that. And it just, um, I was talking to my mother, she's 87 year old, and she knows I'm going to do this interview. And she said, tell, tell her. And 
she's another walker. Tell her that you can't speak Lakota without intuition. You see, and when I when I said that to she said that to me, it made sense that we cannot um, just let go of intuition to to understand the relationship. We we need to include intuition in everything. And the language I speak now doesn't go to it as easily as our languages, in this case, a Lakota language. You need intuition to speak Lakota. Makes sense to me. Yeah, well, that's listening to the ancestors. So that's another thing that Western scholars and a lot of indigenous people have been forced to learn that, you know, don't listen to your dreams. Don't listen to your intuition. Don't listen to those voices in your head. I had to train myself, retrain myself to listen and to accept that that was our normal way of being and go out on the land. I go out on the land to an archeology span site and I sit for a day or two and I listen. Before I touch anything, I listen to what the spirits are telling me. And it feels so good now to listen. And if that's one thing that people can learn, you know, listen to your intuition, no matter where you're from or your background, listen to the voices, listen to your dreams. And because you respect the spirits, to not listen is to disrespect our ancestors and spirits, right? And so we need to really relearn and practice listening. Well, thank you so much, Paul and Steves, and being the author of this wonderful book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. And I was waiting for this for a couple of years since the last time I interviewed you, but now you're on to a new one about the oral tradition and our stories are, are being held with that. So, but I'm looking forward to that too. So thank you and good luck to your garden. And I have a big one here that I can't keep up. There's so much rain, there's so much weeds, and I'm trying to keep up, but it's impossible sometimes. But it's an honor, actually, really is. Thank you for being here, Paulette. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right. Big witch. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was Dr. Paulette Steves' first book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, which was published on July 1st, 2021, by the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse, and I'd like to read the story as we go out of this edition. In the middle of a deadly heat wave in the USA and the severe drought in California, the story of the rainmaker can not be more relevant. In his article, The Natural Order of Things, Llewellyn Von Lee explains how this story reflects our immediate need and asks where are today's rainmakers, those who come from another country where things are in order. Did we banish them all along too, exile them from our world of science and rational thought? Here is the rainmaker story which was told by Carl Jung by his friend Richard Wilhelm. There was a great drought in that part of China where Wilhelm lived. And for months, there had not been a drop of rain, and the situation had become catastrophic. The Catholics made processions, the Protestants made prayers, and the Chinese burned joysticks and shot off guns to frighten away the demons of the drought, but with no result. Finally, the Chinese said, We will fetch the rainmaker, and from another province a dried-up old man appeared. The only thing he asked was for a, a quiet little house somewhere, and there he locked himself in for three days. On the fourth day, the clouds gathered, and there was a great snowstorm at the time of the year 
when no snow was expected, an unusual amount, and the town was so full of rumors about the wonderful rainmaker that Wilhelm went to ask the men how he did it. In true European fashion, he said, They called you the rainmaker. Will you tell me how you made the snow? And the rainmaker said, I did not make the snow. I am not responsible. But what have you done these three days? Oh, I can explain that. I come from another country where things are in order. Here they are out of order. They are not as they should be by the ordinance of heaven. Therefore, the whole country is not in balance. And I am also not in the natural order of things because I am in a disordered country. So I had to wait three days until I was back in balance. And then naturally, the rain came. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Oh, man. 